Glad Tiding is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favourite online betting company. By downloading the Bet365 app, you can access both pre-match and in-play markets, along with instant match updates for all games. The Bet365 Bet Builder also allows you to make personalised bets via the app, so you can bet on multiple scenarios and create your own bet with unique odds right there in your hands. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sports betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Hello everyone, welcome to Glad Tidings, the Athletics Everton podcast. It's me, Greg, and as ever, I am joined by Paddy, and we are not in a coffee shop this week. I'm sorry to disappoint people who've enjoyed the impromptu playlists from the last couple of weeks. No Fleetwood Mac. No Fleetwood Mac. I'm sorry <laughs> for us that we're not, we're not sipping yeah. on some delicious lattes, but, but Paddy has kind of stepped up and provided some nice drinks anyway, and we're in his, we're in his apartment, and um, the sun's shining outside, but... It is slightly worrying times, which is why we're not in a in a cafe. Um, obviously, coronavirus and its effect on football um, continues to kind of unfold, um, and we'll discuss that in this episode. Uh, but just generally, life in the city, um, probably why we've decided to just uh, to just keep it keep it uh, on the lowdown today and stay here. Um, and part like even last night, the Liverpool Atletico game, you know, we all watched it, didn't we? Fantastic game of football. That's sort of caused a debate and it's not that much to do with the game No, it's a strange atmosphere in the city at the moment and I think it's only at least as far as I'm concerned it's only started to kind of filter through in the last few days Yeah. so we're recording the podcast on Thursday the day after Liverpool went out of the Champions League to, to Atletico Madrid and obviously what we've seen over the last few days is it quite a substantial migration of people lots of Atletico fans yeah who actually aren't allowed to travel to go and watch their team in Spain. Yeah. Um, coming from the Spanish capital, Madrid, which is one of the most infected cities in Europe at the moment, to Liverpool. And it just, it, uh, to me anyway, I, I put something up on Twitter similar to this. I'm no medical expert, but it just seemed to me to be absolutely baffling that you can have that mm. uh, disconnect there between what the Spanish authorities are saying for Atletico fans and for what they're able to do mm. across the continent. Pretty unsafe, risks the transmission of the virus. Um, and just from speaking from a personal point of view, I live central, very yeah. centre in, yeah. in Liverpool. I'm, I, I think we're both right in thinking that we just didn't really want to, to kind of be in the centre today for, for a number of different reasons. Still a lot going on, still an awful lot going on. And obviously the, the big question on most, people li- most people's lips, particularly those that listen to this podcast from an Everton persuasion, is what will happen with that Merseyside derby on, on Monday night. We spoke about it a bit off air. Um, so I guess the first question is, what is your understanding of what's likely to happen? It's a difficult question, I don't yeah. know what's likely to happen. Yeah, I mean, so I'm trying to choose my words carefully and kind of be, um, without sounding precious, a bit responsible about it because there's all sorts of rumours as we speak now. And um, if you're listening later on, it could be that this bit's redundant because more might emerge, so bear with us. But as it stands, the game's going ahead on Monday evening at Goodison. As it stands, the game's going ahead in a packed-out Goodison Park. Hmm. 
my feeling is that um, that's likely to be the first faller, if you like. That it's 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 very likely to be um, played behind closed doors with um, one broadcaster in there. So if you've got a season ticket, uh, you'll be able to watch it on on via a broadcaster. Um, I think that we'll be allowed in the media, so I think um, we'll still be able to go in and report on the game, but there won't be any fans, and that's one thing that we can discuss. The other possibility, and uh, I stress that this is only rumours, is that the game simply doesn't take place. Um, this kind of crisis uh, pandemic seems to gather new sort of unsettling momentum by the day. So the, the prospect of actually fixtures being postponed full stop until after the what would have been international break because I can't see the internationals happening is also, I guess, not, not completely outlandish. No, I, I completely agree. And I, I think one of the interesting things that we've, again, spoken about off air is the lengths journalists in our organisation yeah. have had to go to in the last couple of weeks and certainly in the last few days to almost get to some of these games mm, and to, yeah. to, to be considered... Um, be considered for the kind of media accreditation. I know you had to fill out a form, didn't you? An online form with regards to uh, the Merseyside derby because you'll be covering that for for the Athletic. Um, possibly. We, <laughs> well, possibly. Possibly. We're, we're recording, and I think it's worth stressing this, we're recording kind of just after lunch on Thursday. So the latest situation we've got is that Boris Johnson and the rest of the... Um, the British cabinet are likely to meet and discuss social distancing, as they put it, measures. If they make a, a decision and they take the, the, the kind of the, the standing, the, the, the perspective that things need to be postponed or cancelled, then the Premier League has no choice but to go along with that. It'll be a, a British government directive. So, it could get quite interesting quite quickly. Um, I don't think you can rule out any of the possibilities. Certainly games being played behind closed doors mm. where media are present. Games being played behind closed doors where media are present but they're not able to interview anyone because we're being really careful with footballers. Um, games not being played at all in the next few um, weeks and months. I think I think it's basically all up for grabs yeah. um, and will depend how things accelerate over the next 24 to, to 48 hours. It raises a really interesting potential scenario on Monday. Mm. Imagining a Merseyside derby without the fans. And I mean, that it, it's strange, isn't it? Because the one game where you, you, you think of the fans and the impact of the fans, the crowd, all those kind of things, is a Merseyside derby. Yeah. Certainly any kind of derby. Absolutely, so, um, yeah. What do you, I mean, God, it's so outlandish, isn't it, to imagine? Um I guess what do you think that would be like, and who, if anyone, you know, who would that kind of favour? Because it's all about little advantages, isn't it, when it comes to a, a game as sort of um, significant as a Merseyside derby? Who might that play into the hands of? I think I know the answer to this, unfortunately. But, <laughs> but go on. Um, I, I think I know the answer to this as well. And um, my instinct, and it is only an instinct, is that it would feel like a practice match, that the intensity might not be there to the same extent. And we're not talking about it being 50% intensity or 40% yeah. and players walking around the pitch. But it's very hard to replicate the intensity, 100% intensity um, of... Like, that you kind of get in a, in a match when the crowd is there and yeah, they're roaring yeah, you yeah, on. Yeah. 
the logical and next step is that I think that probably benefits Liverpool more than it does Everton. A, a home derby is it's a situation in which the crowd takes on extra importance, particularly when the home team is supposedly a little bit inferior mm. in certain ways. And hopefully, I'm not shocking anything anybody with what I say there. Everton are um, a considerable way off Liverpool at this moment in time in, in the league table. So my impression is that the fact that Everton players wouldn't be able to feed off that intensity from the home crowd to kind of use that to their advantage and channel that and, and effectively get that extra cliched 10% from somewhere, that would help Liverpool a, a bit in, in this game. And you would expect that their kind of extra quality almost in certain areas may well shine through as a result. Am I, am I being unfair there? No, I, no, no. We, we'd sort of just mentioned this when we were chatting about our structure for this, this episode, didn't we? And sadly, I think I, I agree. It'll be, it will be weird for so many different reasons. Can you imagine said cars bouncing out around an empty stadium and it, how surreal it will feel to the players and therefore what a challenge it will be for their mentality to mm. be able to shut out the lack of noise, if you like. Yeah. And just... Um, I mean, on the on the flip side, a lot of these lads have come up through academy settings where they've played at like um, at their training ground. I'm just thinking of Finch Farm here under 18s or, or maybe younger age groups where sometimes you haven't got any fans there. Um, you know, it is just on a, a windswept pitch um, in, in Halewood or, or wherever it is where, yeah. where these players have come from. So it's not like they haven't played in front of fans before, but certainly they haven't played a game where of the required intensity and passion. And I think we will see, and there'll probably be stats that will underline this, just what a difference that lack of atmosphere makes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've been at Goodison Park, as you will have been as well. I've been to a few under 23 games and sat in the press box. And it, it it's quite eerie. It's quite eerie. It does feel like a kind of practice match yeah, type yeah. Of environment. Yeah. You hear every sound, every echo. Um, every shout from the players. Every shout from the players, particularly if it's Everton under 23s and you're listening to Morgan Feeney bailing <laughs> away. It, the voice kind of echoes around Goodison. That's intriguing from a sports journalist point of view, isn't it? Because you get an insight that you perhaps wouldn't get if 40,000 well, yeah. fans were kind of shouting, yeah. ranting, raving, celebrating all the all the kind of emotions and actions you associate with football. Mm. So that's one that I definitely would be keeping an eye on. What what does it mean to have a behind closed doors Merseyside derby? It feels like it would almost be sorely lacking and it's been interesting over the last few days. Premier League managers have been asked about some of these things, particularly Nuno at Wolves and Pep, uh, Pep Guardiola at Manchester City. And both effectively said, without the fans, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Our players feed off the fans. It, it's a kind of a, that's the only way that it becomes a 360 experience. Yeah. Um, and without that, it, it kind of almost is rendered futile. It, be, it becomes yeah. a, a bit pointless. We'd rather not play games at all than do them behind closed yeah. doors. So that that's a further interesting dynamic. We've got governments, we've got clubs, mm. all that kind of stuff. Did the PSG game take place last night? It did. Behind did. closed doors? It did. And that was strange, even just watching the highlights. I, I actually watched the Liverpool game, as, as you'd expect. Yeah, yeah. Um, but just watching the highlights, really bizarre kind of atmosphere. Um, the only sounds when a team scores a goal, as PSG did twice, um, the kind of the, the 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 players close by the goal scorer celebrating in this kind of echoey stadium. So, 
it's, it's hard to know. It's it's difficult from a planning perspective as a journalist. It's difficult to know what to make of it all. Um, I, I think at the well, time, it's unprecedented, isn't it? That's why it is. It is. We, we've not we can't really prepared for it. We we can't. We we can't. Um, and all options on the table. You don't know what happens to the season when it finishes. If it finishes, all all that kind of stuff. And hopefully, that's not alarmist. That's just seems to be common no, sense. Look, that's what everyone's talking about, isn't it? The, yeah. These permutations that um, it just throws so many questions up at the moment and it, and you know I hope for what it's worth as a blue as well the season does finish now, not because I'm clearly not desperate to see Liverpool be crown champions or, or what have you but to just call off the season or, or to try and reach for some sort of compromise where it's resumed later in the year just causes so many backlogged headaches yeah <sighs> I just don't know what you do. <laughs> no, no, and you've got the you've got the European Championships over the summer. Well, exactly, yeah. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, we're in a we're in a situation now where we're only probably six or seven days away from an England squad being announced mm. for March internationals, and there'll be players that could potentially get named in that squad. The likes of say a Dominic Calvert Lewin, who's definitely under consideration. Mason Holgate. Mason Holgate that could well end up being named only then to not get an opportunity because yeah. these internationals are called off. I mean, how how quickly these things move, I don't know. I don't yet. I, I know some clubs are, are testing their players for coronavirus symptoms. Leicester being one of them. Three of their players are exhibiting sy- symptoms. don't think Everton have quite reached that stage yet in terms of the testing side. But it can't be far away. It can't be far away because once it happens with one club... Even if you play games behind closed doors, you have to wonder what's being transmitted in a yeah. sport like football yeah. from player to player. So, um, yeah, it, it's a strange atmosphere for a, for a podcast, a strange atmosphere for a lead-up to a derby. As ever with Everton, there's a whole heap of things to discuss. A whole heap of things More to discuss. More tangible things to discuss, More aren't More tangible there? things to discuss. Not least, Sunday. Yep. The, the horror show that was Sunday. Um at least we can focus on, as much as we might not want to, focus on that. But more importantly, what has to change if Monday is going to go ahead or if hopefully when Monday goes ahead, what needs to change? Now, you were there on Sunday. Sorry about that, mate. Um, <laughs> the food was really good. Well, there, the there you go. There you go. In the a Chelsea way. press box. So that, that's the one redeeming feature for the whole day, <laughs> which otherwise involved lots of rail replacement buses and, and everything else. Um, no, it was, wasn't the best day in the world, I'll, I'll be honest. <laughs> no, nah, nah, listen, I, I felt for you. Um, I felt for anyone ever, ever turning out to watch that, like like I did myself. It was uh, chastening, wasn't it? Yeah. And an unexpected, the, degree, the severity of our awfulness was unexpected. The result was painful. That wretched run down at Stamford Bridge continues. Um, go on, tell me, before we start recording, you, you, you made some really good points about what absolutely has to change because actually the similarities between Chelsea and Liverpool, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I, it's a continuation of the piece I, I, I wrote and, and published on the site on Monday. So basically, I, I felt maybe for one of the first times that while there were a whole heap of reasons for Everton losing that game against Chelsea yeah. and losing by a, a deserved wide margin... That Ancelotti, it was one of the first times when I think Ancelotti was bested yeah, by yeah, his opposite yeah. number. We all know that there are huge shortcomings in this squad. So to pin the blame firmly on Carlo, I think, would be really unfair. But I felt that Chelsea knew where to exploit gaps within the Everton system. As I wrote, 4-4-2 is great when you've got two strikers like Calvert-Lewin 
and Richarlison, you look to play direct football and get the ball forward quickly. Yeah. It's good. It's the easiest formation to coach, I believe, in terms of from a defensive standing, players just knowing their responsibilities, where they should be, all those kinds of things. And you've got those two blocks to fall back into yeah. against sides that are dominating the ball. What I think made a huge difference beyond the fact that the performance levels dropped anyway and players were off yeah. their normal levels yeah. was that numerical advantage in midfield where Chelsea had the extra man and just looked much better in that part of the pitch as a result um, and just able to cut through that Everton midfield. Two Everton guys really, neither of whom, neither of them really are defensive minded. Davison. And, and Andre Gomez yeah. it's where you kind of see the loss of an Adrissa Gay type figure Absolutely. because Gay would, would have been in that space the amount of times when Ross Barkley picked the ball up in space Mason Mount drifted into pockets all that kind of stuff it just seemed like Chelsea had more players in key parts of the pitch the The other thing is and I was, I was watching this because Bernard was on my side of the pitch which is not usual for him to be on the right. But, no, know, I don't think yeah. he should be there, to be honest. Um, yeah. I, I think he's... In, in the four four two. if you've got one winger that goes direct on the right... It should be Walcott, shouldn't it? It should be Walcott. And if you have one player that plays on the left and drifts into pockets, then it's probably, for my money, a Wobie or Bernard. Yeah. Depending on who you're playing and, and, and everything yeah. else, who's in form. So moving Bernard out to the right, I think, failed to grasp how big a threat... Marcus Alonso is yeah. from left back. I mean, he's, he's slight, there's a physical disparity. Yeah. And every single time Alonso was able to bomb on, more or less unopposed, yeah. Bernardo was not able to track those runs. Which meant that you had a situation where you've got Pedro, Alonso, and sometimes Mason Mount as the left-sided central midfielder, forming a three against one against Jabril Sadibi, who I think we can all admit his strengths are going forward. He's, he's a crosser of the ball, he, he bombs on, all that kind of stuff. Mm. But he, positionally, he's been found wanting at times. Now, you look at Chelsea's system, the 4 3 3, you look at the out to win runs, people like Pedro coming inside off the, the left, as Aubameyang did. Liverpool have those players in abundance. Substitute out Pedro for Sadio Mane, yeah. who's a better player still. Yeah. Uh, look at Andy Robertson and the way he gets forward. Look at the energy of, say, a Jorginho Wijnaldum as part of a three against Everton's two. And I think very quickly you realise that they're obviously not the same teams, but the similar setups in many ways. Um, certainly in terms of the, the kind of the, the formation mm. and, and, and the personnel. I came to the conclusion after writing that piece, yeah. after looking back at the game, that Everton couldn't go in to the derby with the same setup and the same personnel. I think it's arguable, arguable that you have to look at the four four two, but I think it's also some of the personnel within that system would, would have to change yeah. to, to fit. Um, so it prompts the question, what needs to change? I think quite quite a lot actually needs to change. There need, need to be a few tweaks. If Everton are to, to play a game, if it goes ahead against Liverpool and come out the other side with a positive result, maybe Everton needed that warning side. I know, I know. Four 0 defeats are difficult to take, yeah. and and we all hated what happened on Sunday. Yeah. It's a big wake up call, and I didn't really expect the manner of the defeat, the, ex the the full extent of the defeat. But maybe it's that wake up call for the derby. Ancelotti might need to tweak a few things, but also for the summer as well, 
because it was, as Ancelotti said to us afterwards in the press conference, um, it was not so long ago, this Everton squad was considered to be in a relegation battle. And he's not improved. He was there in January, but they didn't sign any players, mm. apart from Jared Branthwaite, who's yeah. not a first-team player anyway. So maybe we now look at that and we go, right, we're short of that dynamic presence in the centre. Yeah. Right back is an area we need to look at again yeah. with regards to if Coleman's out or if Coleman's not able to play for a run of games, what do we do with Sadibi? What do we do with John Joe Kenny? Does another right back entirely need to come into the into the equation? What do we do on the right-hand side if Theo Walcott's not fit? Because Theo Walcott has his own injury issues. Who can do what Theo Walcott does on the right? All these things that have been kind of building as questions in our mind, I think kind of came to a head after Sunday. And I think that's where we are now. Um, and if we're putting a really positive spin on that, hopefully you just look at that and think Ancelotti will now know yeah. if he didn't before, and he should have done before. He, he, now, he should now know what needs to change, both within the current squad and in the summer as well. Yeah. Look, absolutely, I totally agree. Um, Sadibi is one that, I know you put a shout-out before on, on, on Twitter and a few people asked you know, whether he has a future. Um, I, I have to say hand on heart at the moment, I, I don't feel... I mean, £30 million is a good price for a World Cup winning... Um, attackingly... Uh, attackingly? <laughs> so creatively influential fullback but when you're making the errors that he's been starting to make recently positionally when you can't complete five ten yard passes when you're always bringing pressure on your team um, like he has been in recent games I just, I just don't think it's worth it I think it leaves him with a headache I think they, they obviously do need to make a decision about Kenny and Sadibi and, and they're, play, they're playing coy Marcel Branson they haven't made a decision on either and I can see that because Sadibi has had his moments when he's looked like a player and there's still you know a few games a season left where he might, he might shine against Southampton he might shine against uh, Sheffield United and all of a sudden you think well do you know what uh, on the balance of things he's worth he's worth taking um, a £13 million mitigated risk on but if you ask me to make a decision now I'd say just find someone better I'd say find, find a right-footed Luca Dean yeah. e- easier said than done I know but why should we in such an important position why should we settle for a flawed option? Yeah, I mean, Everton's state of goal, Ancelotti wants to challenge for the Champions League next season. And at the very least, it looked a, it looked a long way off on Sunday. It certainly it did. A million yeah. miles away on mm-hmm. Sunday. But at the very least, get back into Europe. Mm-hmm. So you're looking, effectively, in terms of components, you're looking for a top six players, aren't you? Yeah. Now, if what we're saying with somebody like Jabril Sadibi based on the evidence, is that he's likely to be exploited yeah. by the top six clubs, then by definition he's not a top six player. Exactly. Um, so it's, do, you, do you pay the 13 million, Everton is still unsure, do you pay the 13 million to have him as one of your two options, as like a rotation option? Do you bring back John Joe Kenny, who 12 months ago, less than 12 months ago, wasn't considered ready for the first team? Again, that's up in the air, yeah. even though Everton have been pleased with his spell so yeah. far. Seamus is another year on, picking up injuries. So I think Everton are in this curious place where they've got three options. Either players that aren't at the club now or aren't contracted to the club now and are, and are else, or elsewhere. But long term, none of them might be the answer in a curious way. And we, we can't write players off. I'm, I'm pretty sure at least one of them um, will still be at the club. Yeah. Come, um, come the summer, 
But what you've said there about Luca Dean, Luca Dean at his best looks like a top six left back. So if you're looking to make strides, you're looking to get into that yeah. group, then you need to find the equivalent, yeah. I think is would be my rationale. My problem, and Sadibi does bring a lot to the table offensively, but my problem is, and I wrote this in the piece as well, um, if I'm going to continue to bang that drum, is that they concede the same goals. This Everton side at the moment, they're yeah. conceding the same goals. Look how similar the Pedro goal was to Aubameyang's. All Mane's in the first, derby before Christmas. All Mane's in the derby. And what starts to kind of come into the head is that sides know that yeah. they need to have a play that makes those runs and yeah. they can exploit it. So it, become, it becomes an issue. It becomes an issue that opposition teams know about when they do the, the video analysis, yeah. scouting before games. I think it's also impacted on somebody like Yeri Mina with regards to squad selection because clearly Mason Holgate's first choice. Mm-hmm. But you've got Keane and Mina battling it out. We've seen Sadibi and Mina be exploited mm-hmm. a little bit. Certainly they were against Arsenal. And Keane and Sadibi were against Chelsea. And I think that's factored in who can best kind of yeah. compensate for um, Sadibi in certain areas. So I'm still, I, 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 it's still a big question mark for me, even at 13 million, because I actually think what Everton really need to do is they need to, to start recruiting smarter. Yeah. Players that they're not going to be able to shift or they haven't been able to shift have depreciated in value but are still on big contracts and I don't know how you square that equation even like an Abdullah Decore who they looked at over the summer to get him from Watford you're talking probably about a 30 to 40 million pound fee yep massive salary really big salary probably and I'm just plucking a figure out here but he's going to want more money than he's on at Watford and he's going to want to be a top player at Everton top players at Everton are on around 100 grand a week He's a guy that very soon is going to be 28. If he's not already now, maybe I should be looking at his Wikipedia page here, but he's 27 or 28. Yeah. He's a player that's, that I would say is in his peak, but will soon be moving out of his peak. Yeah. What you need to be doing, as I think we've mentioned before, is is finding the next Abdullah Dekore. Yeah. And most of Everton's best players at this moment in time are the ones where there's still a lot of upside to come. Richarlison, Mason Holgate... Uh, to a lesser extent, Yeri Mina. Um, I've missed somebody glaring off Dom. there. Dominic Calvert-Lewin, obviously. Um, a kind of a, a glaring omission there from that list. They're all guys that you need to put your faith in. But if you were to sell any one of them now, you'd make a huge profit. You'd make a hefty profit on them. I think that's the way for Everton to go now. And it's not necessarily the case that you look to to spend, even if it's a bargain 13 million, you look to spend a bargain 13 million on 28-year-olds. Yeah. I, I think you go about things in a different way. So I think there have been questions raised during this run. Um, it's not great to see Everton fade in the odds for a European mm-hmm. place. But you have to look at this pragmatically. And I think the way to look at it pragmatically is what has to change in the next run of games and what needs to change over the summer. I think, I, I think most people now would be pretty... St- Certain, yeah, over what they would like to see happen. That's my that's my instinct anyway. Yeah, I mean, if you even think that we were linked in the Italian media, so I think as it stands, you and I would say, um, just treat a few of the stories with a bit of caution because mm. everything will be linked with millions of players, maybe exaggerating a lot of players. 
because um, the, the needs are, are quite clear. But they were linked with Alan from Napoli, which is not an unusual one. He was a really go-to player for, for Ancelotti when he was in Naples. Now, he's 28-29 as well. Mm. So when you can talk about that smart recruitment, is that an age for a player where he's clearly not really going to have a sell-on value? Is that what they want to be doing? Marcel Brands in the past has suggested not. Um, but when you when you talk about Sadibi, then just to say a final word on him, I he actually reminds me a little bit on Sunday of Cuco Martina, okay. in, in like the, his sheer kind of disastrous disastrousness of his game. I don't think he's a better player than Cuco Martina. He is, yeah. Miles better, but would he just be a slightly upgraded version of you once you've bought him? You're you're stuck with him then, and if if he's not going to get any better, because he's he's not a kid either, Sadibi, then he's just a, another another wage drain potentially. Mm. I don't know. Uh, it's going to be very very interesting to see what Everton decide. Really really interesting. The Athletic Podcast is brought to you in association with Stitch Fix, an online personal styling service that takes the hard work out of dressing well. To get started, go to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic and fill in a style quiz to tell them all about your personal style, budget, size and shape, your clothing needs and wants. A personal stylist will send you five items of clothing, each hand-picked, especially for you from our selection of 100 brands, including established names and -and up-and-coming designers. Try on everything at home and style with other items in your wardrobe. You can then pay for what you love and send back the rest. For your stylist time, you pay a charge of just a tenner, which is deducted from the cost of anything you decide to buy. Remember, you try before you buy. Delivery and returns are free both ways. You don't need a subscription to sign up. Get started with Stitch Fix today and support our podcast by going to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic right now. That's stitchfix, S-T-I-T-C-H-F-I-X dot co.uk forward slash athletic. Let's mention a couple of other things because we've had a few um, a few interesting pieces on the site this week. Starting with... Um, the Benfica lab yeah which I was actually not surprised but it was interesting to see quite a few of the people who we interacted with uh, subscribers who met under the piece were saying that they'd not heard of it which I suppose is not that surprising really it it is a bit esoteric and kind of um, it's more of an off the pitch thing explain what it is for people that don't know and then we'll talk about our conclusions about it because it, fa- it failed basically in Merseyside, didn't it? Yeah, so I mean, taking it from its very origins, it, it started in Benfica, as the name suggests. <laughs> and was basically, it was a sports science programme designed to closely monitor players individually, yeah. taking blood samples and blood traces to prevent injury to know when they were likely to peak, to tailor individual performance plans, all those kinds of things. It was devised. The architect of it was Bruno Mendes, who um, became Marco Silva's head of performance at Everton about a month after Silva himself joined. And the idea was Bruno, as the head of performance, the liaison, see him as the bridge Mm. between the medical team Mm. and the nutrition team and the technical staff the footballing staff he's he's got to be the liaison there and he's got to be the one kind of leading those programs working on regimes all that kind of stuff the aim was to replicate it to an extent uh, 
Finch Farm uh, on the outskirts of the of Liverpool Everton's training base, obviously. Our piece, for those that haven't read it, um, please do. Our piece basically looks at why that wasn't as successful as it should have been. We spoke to a number of people familiar with it to get an insight into what they think worked, what didn't work, why it didn't work. Um, so one of the things we put in, for example, is um, Bruno Mendes joined and is no longer obviously at the club. All of Silva's staff, the guys that he brought in himself, mm-hmm. have been moved on um, and were moved on um, back in December. So that meant that what was he? He was only there from kind of July to De- July of twenty eighteen to December twenty nineteen. He was only there for fifteen sixteen months. To implement something like the Benfica Lab, as somebody said to us, it requires much more time, requires much more expertise. But it didn't really get off the ground. And we know from speaking to to our own sources that certain players were kind of unsure as to what was actually going on. And as a result, were kind of surprised, almost didn't buy into it. Staff at the club didn't feel it had been communicated sufficiently. Um, And obviously, yeah, there's mitigating factors. You've got a a largely Portuguese-based team that between themselves spoke Portuguese. Mm-hmm. So it was difficult always to get messages across. And there were language barriers to an extent. So that was what the piece was about. I think it was really interesting kind of delving into this. But I think the the ramifications are those guys, in most cases, are no longer still at the club. Bruno himself is no longer at the club. And there's a new regime. And from speaking to the new regime, the likes of Mino Fulco, um, the new head of performance... Maori, the um, the fitness coach, all those guys, and Carlo himself, obviously, Davide Carlo. We've been told that the atmosphere is markedly different now, that it feels more inclusive, that staff are more on board with it, that it's more relaxed, more upbeat, all these kinds of things, and that there's more synergy between the Italian team, the existing English team, and everybody else at yeah. the club, which yeah. bodes really well. Bodes really well for the future. Um, so check that piece out. I mean, that was, it was an interesting one to write. It was, wasn't it? <laughs> it was yeah. a really yeah. interesting one to write. And I think it's always good to give that kind of behind the scenes yeah. in, insight. It wasn't the only piece, was it? It wasn't the only piece we've written this week. There've been no, we've a few others. We so we did. We did. Um, I had a chat with Jose Baxter, who people may or may not remember played for the club. He was the. He still is the club's youngest ever player. 16 and 191 days he, he played the Premier League um, only actually made seven first team appearances after that you know, after a really bright start lots of noises about him being the next big thing off the production line obviously he preceded Ross Barkley but he was after Wayne Rooney and there were the inevitable comparisons he was from from a you know a kind of working class part of Merseyside as well he's from Littleland and Bootle and um, really gifted attacking midfielder had a lot going for him and it, it didn't work out at Everton uh, and he left the club. It subsequently hasn't really worked out for him in English football, full stop. He's had some good spells at Oldham. Um, he had a promising move to Sheffield United and that sadly didn't work out because he tested positive for for, for drugs, for cocaine mm. and ecstasy. And as it later emerged, he was in a downward spiral, really. He was suffering from depression. Yeah. Um, he was having a very rough time of it and made some ill-advised decisions off the pitch. He's now over that. He, he He's come through the hard times. He's got a little girl. He's, he's got a stable relationship. And he's got a second chance at football out in Memphis with Tim Howard. Yeah. He's not only the owner, not only the sporting director of Memphis 901 in the second division out in the States, he's now the goalie. 
one of the first when he was trying to put together his team, David Moyes style on a shoestring. Someone mentioned Baxter to him, and he's he's given he jumped at the chance. So Jose's over there, and we chatted to him um, earlier in the week, and it was really interesting hearing how he's getting on. He's, he was, I mean, for anybody that's not read the piece, he was really candid. He speaks about hard times. There is still, to an extent, hard times. I mean, his 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 girlfriend and his little girl are not in Memphis in the US with him. They that they're still on Merseyside. Yeah. So he's out there playing, kind of living in in this relatively nice part of the city isn't he not not too far away from the stadium yeah enjoying things um i think the fitness regimes over there mean that he's kind of been whipped into shape yeah. by all that kind of stuff so he, he was remarkably frank i thought he, i thought it's really really good value one of the things that shines through to me and i think this comes through when you read tim howard's part of the piece and from the reactions of other players to him is that even though there were misdemeanors and he had difficult moments he remained popular. Yeah. So Tim Howard was in no uncertain terms that this was a guy that could push the Memphis 901 uh, USL championship side on. He knew that. He was getting texts from his former teammates at Goodison. Bill Kenwright obviously brought him back a few years ago and allowed him to train when he didn't have a club with uh, Everton's on the 23s and David Unsworth was very complimentary. So it's kind of a good story, and I loved the anecdote. He, he speaks, not to give too much away, but he speaks about watching the Tyson Fury documentary, yeah. which I've actually just gone through myself. It's really, really good. Um, and he speaks about kind of taking inspiration from that almost. Now, of course, he's not saying that I'm looking to follow in the footsteps of Tyson Fury, any of that kind of stuff, but I think he just drew a few parallels yeah. um, and is looking to get back on the straight and narrow. It seems like he's there. I'm, I'm really, really pleased um, because I think... Underneath everything, he is a nice, he is a nice guy, a very talented footballer. Yeah. I remember at the age of fifteen or fourteen, hearing when he was fifteen or fourteen, hearing about him, and people within the academy were saying, "This is the best prospect we've had since Wayne Rooney," and he's breaking some of Wayne's goal-scoring records, mm. and he looks like he's going to be the next big thing. When he started coming through at sixteen, he looked really good. Mm. He looked really, really good and almost scored on his debut. I think it was against Blackburn. That's right, yeah, he did. He, he almost scored. scored on his debut yeah. with a header, I think it was. Came on in the second half. Came on in the second yeah. half. Um, so, it's, yeah, it's, it's a nice story. Howard, Tim Howard and Jose Baxter reunited over in Memphis. Makes me really interested in the USL Championship all of a sudden. So, if I'm, if I'm ever in the States, I'll have to try and get over to a Memphis game. Try and get myself a... A train on top or something in Memphis nine oh one. Yeah, the AutoZone Stadium looks like a nice yeah. ground actually. Down yeah. downtown Memphis, not far from Graceland. Um, yeah, it's cool. Definitely. And what about the other one? We were chatting about this before we started, weren't we? This hasn't been on the site yet, so not too many spoilers. But I can't wait to read it. You you've had a look at Everton, remarkable really. The only team in the Premier League this season not to have a penalty kick. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of a deep intake of breath moment when you start talking about that. It's nuts, isn't it? It, it is nuts. It is nuts. And just to, to put this into the wider context, obviously it's worth looking at why this has happened. But if Everton go the whole season without winning a penalty in the Premier League, they'll become only the ninth side to do that. So, I mean, there's a very small select number. And most of the sides, when you go through it, the Tottenham Hotspur in there, strangely, but most of the other sides are like, a Charlton Athletic, yeah. sides that were lower down the table, that maybe weren't quite as expansive in the way they played the game, maybe didn't have wingers looking to take take the opposition on, yeah. all that kind of stuff. So I guess the thing to to say is, I mean, you, you look at Everton and kind of under, under Ancelotti, 
they're, they're utilising Richarlison, they're getting the ball into him, he's fouled a lot, all these kinds of things. So I basically just looked at, at why this um, this record exists. What we found when we looked at some of the refereeing decisions, when we got second opinions on some of the refereeing decisions, I think Everton should have at least had two or three penalties. Yeah. There's a there's a real consensus. The one there's a real consensus around is the Deli Alley handball. That even Dermot Gallagher, <laughs> who does Sky's ref watch, yeah. and kind of doesn't really want to dig out his former colleagues. Very reluctant to, isn't he? He's very yeah. reluctant to say somebody's made a wrong decision. Yeah. Even he um, said that yeah. that was a, a Stonewall penalty. And what he said actually was VAR, the VAR official, should have spotted that for mm. Martin Atkinson the referee on the day. There's a lot of consensus, although not 100%, around Theo Walcott getting pulled back against mm-hmm. Brighton and that that should probably have been ascending off. Um, some people we spoke to thought that um, Dominic Calvert-Lewin was fouled by Virgil van Dijk mm-hmm. in the first um, Merseyside derby. And there are a few other decisions. You look at Sigurdsson uh, recently against Manchester United. Um, well, not everybody agreed, but a lot of people thought that was a penalty. I think Everton have been a bit unfortunate, but there are also tactical things to look at, the way Everton play, how many times people are dribbling. Uh, it's only really Richarlison, to, for a bit of a spoiler, it's only really Richarlison, and he's high up with a with a large percentage of Everton's yeah. dribbles. Um, I kind of came to the conclusion that, conclusion that they've been unlucky, mm-hmm. but that the way Everton are playing currently means that we're not kind of likely to get a whole heap of penalties anytime soon um, if it is it'll kind of be one here or there given the statistics so yeah that, that should be on the site on Friday check that out we'll also be building towards the Merseyside derby if it is indeed going ahead um, so it's been a busy week it's yes. been a busy week who knows what next week will involve Clo- a closing on. thought before we go because um, we forgot to uh, include this one but the bobblers the lads at the County Road bobblers David and, and all the other lads who Big shout out to really um, impressed with the work they've done and good to see that David is now on the fans forum and able to be a link from you know sort of the good work that the Bobblers have done and, and being taken in-house at the club as well and really represent the fans. Um, he's asked us about Iwobi. You know, we mentioned him earlier, but probably worth, and you, you indeed was, was suggesting that it was a good shout for him starting really on Monday. Um, yeah, how does he fit in? Is he just, is he a left winger? In four four two, I think he's been one of the biggest four guys from the change in formation because in a four two three one, I think he's best as a number ten. But I think he he could also I, play I think he's best as a number ten as well. Yeah, yeah. With a four four two not having a number ten, you couldn't see him in one of the two central midfield roles. I think he could play as in a three. Yeah, as yeah. the furthest forward. Yeah. Um, in a four-three-three or a four-two-three-one, but not as one of your two central midfielders. Don't think he's disciplined enough or or strong enough mm-hmm. as a central midfielder. Kind of has to go in one of the wide positions, and I think we're looking for that balance where we have one that goes, that breaks the lines, that's rapid, like a Theo Walcott type, yeah, and one that looks to come in off that left. So he, he competes, as we've said before. I think he competes with Bernard. Um, Bernard on his day, obviously, is fantastic. But there are consistency issues, so yeah. that it, it it's an either or for me. And Sigurdsson obviously clouds the waters there, but I I, I don't like to see Sigurdsson in that position no. massively. So I think Wobi is an interesting case, and and some people, I mean, I, I was speaking to colleagues at the weekend, 
um, who was saying, well, what's happened with him? What, why is he, we're not familiar with Everton, what's, what's happened with, with Awobi? I thought he was really talented. And I think he is to an extent, but I think he's been unlucky with a series of injuries. He's never got any momentum. He was obviously brought in by Brandon Silva. Now he's got Ancelotti, it's a new system, mm. he's been injured, all these kinds of things. Bernard's mini renaissance at mm. Goodison, so Sigurdsson being moving out, it's kind of muddied the waters for him. So I think it's really important if the, if the rest of the season goes ahead that he, he almost kind of starts to carve out his own niche and do things. But I, I, I see a lot of criticism for him and I think some of it's a bit unfair. Sometimes mm. he's played out of position, sometimes he just hasn't been very good. Um, but I think you... you Delve a bit deeper into your underlying numbers. Who's passing the ball forward? Who's carving out chances from open play? And it would be Bernard and Iwobi mm-hmm. from open play that are Everton's main creators. Luca Dean chips in, but a lot of them are from set pieces or crosses. Sigurdsson, if he creates chances, it's largely from set pieces as well. It's important, but it's not the only, only thing to consider. So I think he's got a role in this current Everton side. But maybe the formation doesn't do him a whole heap of favours, particularly if he has to play kind of an in- inverted role from the right. I don't yeah. think that suits him. I think he's better on the left yeah. coming inside. Okay. He's a continuity player. He reminds me a lot of Stephen Pienaar. He's not that good yet, obviously, but he reminds me a lot of Stephen Pienaar. So, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question. Hopefully we've, we've given yeah, some in- insight definitely. into that. I think we've both previously said, haven't we, that you look at four four two, and one of the main areas to invest in would be a new central midfielder. Right side, I think we need another option with Walcott. One that adds goals to this side because they do seem short. 100%. If Charleston and yeah. Calvert-Lewin aren't scoring, they do seem short. There are issues at right back. You might look at another centre-back as well. So I think we've answered that question. Thanks then for that. We've had a few other ones that I think we've almost discussed. Like Tom Chalmers asked, what do we do at right back for next season? I think we've sort of spoken about that one. Um, nice one for the question though Tom thank you for the question Tom uh, Matthew Barry realistically will Everton be able to find buyers for Sandro Schneidlin, Walcott Balassi in the summer or is it a case of loaning them out to see out the final year the contrast mix and match maybe it will depend on the interesting somebody like Schneidlin could generate interest because he's still got something to offer it at the highest level he's going to have to take a wage cut though he'd have to take a wage cut and this is the big problem Theo Walcott, I don't, I couldn't foresee him being allowed to leave, given that they're playing four four two, and he's one of those options on the right. Balassi, they've tried to get out for a while now, but it doesn't look like Sporting will exercise their option to buy him mm-hmm. for around four million euros. And Sandro, obviously, would need need to take a huge pay cut to go anywhere. They are, and I'm merging two questions here, um, because Dan Davis effectively asks: Are Everton still paying for the mistakes of the Cumin regime and the Walsh regime? They are. Because people like Sandro and Balassi that joined on big salaries for big sums of money, in the case of Balassi, they're the hardest ones to shift, Yeah. particularly when they've, they've been out of form. So I think Everton are still paying for that, and you can see it in the accounts, definitely. I think we've just about got through all the questions there. The only one that I think we should look at discussing another time, Jim James asks for a review of our youth setup. Winning cups and leagues, he says, appears amazing. But a lack of progression and minimal funds coming in from youth sales suggests it's failing. Discuss. I have seen your question, Jim. I don't think we could have done that justice in two or three minutes. That almost seems like it needs to be its own podcast or article. It's a good question, yeah. yeah. And I think we will get round to that over the summer at some point because there's lots to discuss there. There's some thoughts that we can we can put into a piece and we can speak to people about that one. Um, 
I'll just leave you with uh, Lewis Gibson, who's doing very well at the moment and who has got a tailored player pathway, probably involving another loan. Already garnering interest from other clubs because he's doing so well at Fleetwood, yet to lose a game and hardly conceding any goals. He's one of the ones they've got big hopes for. Um, so I think they're now maybe looking at things a different way. They're looking to get players out on loan earlier and to improve them. That's important. I think yeah. that's a big step. So we'll look at that another time. I think that's one definitely to look at another time. But thank you all for your questions. I think it, it, it's definitely important that we, we get round to some of them. Um, and it's been, I mean, 45 minutes of have flown by then. It's, it's, been a, um, it's been an interesting We've one. flown by without our soundtrack, haven't they? Well, they, they have, and I, I do miss the Fleetwood Mac, I have to, I have to be honest. It's, it's nice to have that in the background. It's also nice to have good coffee as well. Um, so I kind of feel a little bit underpowered <laughs> for this. Um, and we seem sluggish. We, we might have seemed sluggish. Maybe, maybe nobody's listening by this point in the, uh, in the podcast. But we'll, all things being well, we'll be back next week for, for another episode. Um, lots and lots to talk about as ever this week I'm sure there will be next week with Derby fallouts potentially um, so, so yeah it's been an interesting one hasn't it